Renaissance Online Radio, clear for departure. Welcome back to Renaissance Online Radio. This is episode number 14. I'm recording it on April 7 of 2016. Well, I've been going back to my roots here in the past week or so. We, it's, it seems that when it rains, it pours, as they say, and uh, they also say that um, bad things happen in threes. Well, sitting in front of my tractor shed right now are three vehicles, all of which were running two weeks ago and now are not. Two of them have Cummins 5.9-liter 12-valve diesels, and the other is the uh, car that I inherited uh, when I bought my wife her minivan. So, ah, spending some time twisting wrenches and getting back into that process. Uh, thankfully, my uh, my farm worker, my farm hand, my farm manager, depending on what day he uh, uh, is uh, called what, um, has some experience with the with the Cummins diesel engines, uh, considering he owns one of the ones that is broken, and we both have the same problems with them. So, what are I? What are we going to talk about today? Why don't we talk about the diesel engine? Well, when most people think about diesel engines, they think about well, let's see, smelly hands, smelly exhaust, visible smelly exhaust, noisy engines, big trucks, things like that. It seems like diesel has, in general, gotten a bit of a bad rap, but why does it still hang around if it's got such a poor reputation? Well, the easiest answer for that is efficiency. We have seen a push toward electric vehicles in the in recent years, and we like to think that they are uh, a practical alternative to a car. And in some ways, and for certain missions, they can be. But remember, a an electric car is a coal-powered car, depending on where you live. It may be water-powered. It may be nuclear-powered. It might be solar-powered. It might have some wind power. But at least in my region, the southeast United States, your main power sources are coal, followed, this is off the top of my head, I don't have numbers, uh, followed by hydroelectric, followed by nuclear. Um, And so when I see a straight electric car like the Volt, I think a coal-powered car. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but... Uh, It is not magical, clean technology, as people would like for you to believe. So, I could argue, and uh, probably effectively, that all of our normal sources of power, excluding nuclear power, are solar-powered. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's start with the quote, normal technology, end quote, of our automotive uh, options. That would be the internal combustion gasoline engine. 
And what is the big advantage of that over, well, what we had before? What we had before was horse-drawn or steam. Well, steam was about, oh, 10 to 20% efficient. Um, horse-drawn was nowhere close to that in the, in the total uh, efficiency. We're not going to go into that tonight. But um, compare the steam engine, which took coal or wood and turned it into steam energy, which then turned the steam the engine turned the steam energy into mechanical energy. Uh, that process produced about twenty percent uh, efficiency, meaning the amount of actual energy released in the process, eighty percent of it went up in smoke or otherwise away without doing any work for the person operating it. So along came uh, several other technologies. The auto cycle, which is the four-stroke cycle that is common to almost all gasoline engines on the road today. And I say almost, uh, I'm leaving out the Wankel design, which is a four-stroke design, but it doesn't work in the same way. Uh, I'm also ignoring the two-stroke um, design, which really is not represented in the automotive market. Uh, it used to be uh, the early Saab automobiles, believe it or not, had two-stroke engines, but those went out the window oh, about the time emissions controls came along because you just couldn't clean them up. If my memory serves me correctly, um, Fiat also had some two-stroke uh, cars. I believe that the first Honda automobiles were also two-stroke applications of their motorcycle engine applied to the road, but I could be completely wrong about that. Um, regardless, that's a bit of a side uh, discussion. The auto cycle, uh, very concisely uh, boiled down to uh, suck, squeeze, burn, blow, if you know anything about cars, you'll find some amusement in that. And if you don't, you'll probably find even more. Um, but you have four strokes. Uh, that would be intake, compression, combustion, and exhaust. Now, the diesel cycle actually shares those strokes, uh, but it works a little bit differently. So what is the key difference between a diesel engine and our normal four-stroke gasoline engine that we have today. Well, so intake on a gasoline engine brings into the cylinder both the air and the fuel. And they are mixed and then squeezed during compression to about uh, one-eighth to one-tenth of the volume that they started at, at which point a spark is created with electricity using a spark plug, and that starts the fire that burns that fuel-air mixture. Of course, that produces heat. Heat produces expansion. Expansion is harnessed into mechanical energy. The efficiency of the gasoline engine is roughly 60%. Um, now, the diesel engine uses about twice the compression of a gasoline engine. 
So if a gasoline engine runs about uh, 10 to 1 compression ratio, meaning the volume of the gas is brought into the cylinder, is squeezed down to about one-tenth of the uh, of its original volume, which produces a pressure, if we were to say atmospheric pressure is about 15 psi, one uh, a 10 to 1 compression ratio would give you approximately 150 pounds per square inch of pressure within the cylinder. So uh, that if you if you recall from physics, if you squeeze a gas, you increase its temperature. And in the gasoline engine, that's that's not really all that desirable of a of an effect. It, it's okay, uh, but the gasoline has this nasty habit if you squeeze it too hard and make it too too hot it'll light off on its own and that produces the the effect known as knocking or detonation and in a gasoline engine that can cause mechanical damage and in an aircraft engine which is built for strength but not for more strength than is necessary because your goal being light weight as well as power in an aircraft engine you can actually cause the cylinders to be broken off of the engine and can be ejected through the cowling and that can make for a very very bad day for a pilot but in the diesel engine rather than a 10 to 1 compression ratio uh, the the engine takes in a charge of air without fuel in it and squeezes that air up to about 20 to 1 so Theoretically, if you uh, if you have a twenty to one uh, compression ratio, with atmospheric uh, pressure being fifteen uh, pounds per square inch, that would give you three hundred psi. Now, that is quite a bit of pressure, and so if you were to have the fuel enter the engine with that air, you have no control over when it will ignite. And, of course, if it ignites too soon, then you've burned your fuel charge before the piston has even reached the top of its stroke. And so you're working against the uh, direction of motion that you, that you desire. So rather than in, intake the air and the fuel together like in the gasoline engine, the diesel engine directly injects the fuel in an atomized form through uh, very high pressures, into the combustion chamber, into the cylinder, and it instantaneously catches on fire and burns. And that's how it works. That's how a diesel uh, engine um, operates. Now, not only do you have higher efficiency, now remember I said the the uh, steam engine was about 20% efficiency. The gasoline engine was about about 60% efficiency. The diesel engine approaches 75% efficiency. So for a given amount of fuel put in your tank, you can go more miles. So we know that we have to have air that's being heated heated up quite hot in order for a diesel engine to run. Uh, and we know that a, a, a vehicle can't just be expected to operate in warm weather it has to operate in cold weather also so you have to have ways to start the fire when the compression heat is not high enough to light it off itself this is why 
a lot of diesels have something called glow plug, uh, one in each cylinder. And so the glow plug incre- uh, actually actually turns red hot inside the cylinder, and that lets the fire light off. That's just when you're starting the engine the first, uh, the first few times it cranks over. Uh, after, you, after it's running, there's no need for it. Uh, but when, when the engine is really, really cold, the glow plug helps it start. Now, there are other options for making a diesel start. Uh, one is an air grid heater, uh, which literally heats the air going in. Um, the other is you get a bottle of ether and you squirt some into the intake and the ether lights off even more easily than the diesel does. Now, you might wonder what I mean when I say ether. That bottle of starting fluid that they, uh, that they sell at the parts store, that is ether with a little bit more. And uh, that's really about the only place I know of that we use ether in everyday living now. Uh, it used to be that it was really the only, one of the only anesthetics available. Uh, but it has been replaced by far superior anesthetics that don't make you feel quite so sick and are not flammable. So that's a, kind of a nice improvement in the field of anesthesiology. But I digress. So that's a little bit of a discussion on what makes diesel different and, in my opinion, better. Now, one of the problems that I used to have with diesel was I always thought it was kind of slow because I had had a couple of, well, three diesels, and they were all fairly sedate in their acceleration. Now, they got good mileage, and this is back in an era when 25 miles to the gallon was considered good. I could get 40 to 45 out of my diesel rabbit, and that it ran fine. It just didn't accelerate very fast. It would, it would maintain the speed just fine. But in recent years, we have seen a lot of interest in making diesels perform, diesel performance. And so how it's quite an interesting, interesting topic, at least to, uh, to a mechanical nerd like myself. Uh, how do you make a diesel engine go fast? And it turns out, well, the more fuel and the more air you can poke into that and push into that engine, the more power it will put out. It's pretty obvious when you think about it. So it's fairly basic. You put turbocharging on it to force more air in. You put an intercooler on it to cool off that air coming out of the turbo so you can actually pack more air molecules into the cylinder with each, uh, with each cycle. And then you put uh, a, a larger set of fuel injectors in, and so the uh, fuel delivery goes up, and suddenly you've got, a, you've got a, an engine that is kind of fun to drive, actually. Um, I've, got a, I've got a truck that has a 5.9 Cummins in it. I bought it this way. I can't take credit for it. But, um, well, let's, uh, let's just say... I'm lucky I haven't gotten a ticket yet because it's just too much fun to, uh, to make it go fast. And when you're sitting up high like, uh, like you are in a truck, it doesn't really feel like you're going as fast as you actually notice you're going when you get to the bottom of the on-ramp and you look down and it says 85. And, uh, yeah, I knew it was fun, but I uh, didn't realize I was going that fast. So, anyway, that's, uh, 
that's a little bit of discussion about uh, about uh, the basics of diesels. We could go on and on. Uh, there's a lot of minutia that could be discussed, but the uh, the interest level would probably be quite a bit less after about two minutes of exploring the idiosyncrasies of injector design, uh, combustion chamber shapes, and uh, other such uh, such niceties. But I will spare you for for this broadcast uh, for this podcast. Earlier in this podcast, I did mention that almost all energy is solar. What do I mean by that? Well, just for fun, let's think about the different forms of energy that we use. Now, I am excluding nuclear because it falls into a a completely different uh, line of thinking. But, okay, fossil fuels to begin with. What are fossil fuels? Fossil fuels come from fossils. What are fossils? Fossils were plants and other organic life. Life that depended on the sun. Life that depended on photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is the process that turns carbon dioxide into other carbon molecules, such as glucose, such as oils, such as proteins. And so what you're doing is harnessing solar energy to form bonds, to make higher level molecules. And so our fossil fuels are large underground deposits of organic molecules. Very basically, they are solar energy that has been stored over a long period of time that we are now taking advantage of and using. Of course, uh, solar energy directly, uh, that's easy to explain. Also, wind energy. Wind energy, in part, comes from the rotation of the Earth, but more importantly, comes from differential heating of the Earth's surface leading to air movement. And so uh, that heating, of course, is solar, and therefore there is another pathway to solar energy. Of course, wood power uh, is also, and much more obviously, solar. So that's, that's also another way to think of, uh, think of wood, is packaged solar energy. And when we talk about the internal combustion engine as opposed to solar or electric vehicles, one of the one of the advantages that continues to exist and will continue to exist for the foreseeable future unless someone comes up with a very creative alternative is that you can only put so much electricity back into a storage medium in a given amount of time. You cannot get a full charge in a, in a rapid fashion that competes with the efficiency of pulling up to a gas station and pouring in 10 to 20 gallons of liquid energy in the form of gasoline or diesel. Until that problem has been dealt with, there will be significant limitations 
to the usefulness of electrical vehicles, of, of electric-powered vehicles. And I'm actually sad about this in some ways because I'm a huge fan of, of the uh, Tesla motor, motor company. Um, the, the whole idea is just cool. But you have a limitation in how much energy the batteries can hold and how fast they can be recharged. Now, the solution that would make the most sense for cross-country travel in your own electric vehicle would be a system where you have, rather than charge stations or gas stations, you have battery exchange facilities. And so you pull in on your cross-country and they drop out the battery pack that you've been running and they slide right into your vehicle a new fully charged battery pack and on you go. That will take significant infrastructure. The cars will have to be designed with interchangeable batteries and the cost for that will have to be included in either a subscription service or well, really, I think that's the only only viable option would be a, a subscription service or or pay as you go. But it's going to be not cheap to to be able to exchange batteries. Um, now, battery technology is improving with more lithium cells uh, le- uh, rather than uh, rather than lead acid, but batteries are always going to be heavy and they're always going to be somewhat dangerous because either you have problems with toxicity with the batteries or you have problems with, um, well, very simply, explosion. They can and do at times catch fire or explode. Now that can be from external damage in the case of lithium-ion batteries. Try sticking a nail through one, you'll uh, you'll get some real excitement. Uh, or um, even lead-acid batteries, during the time they're charging, they off-gas hydrogen. And hydrogen, as uh, the Hindenburg very uh, colorfully uh, showed us, uh, hydrogen explodes, or should we say burns very rapidly. So those are, those are some of the drawbacks. Of course, gasoline does too. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's not to say the gasoline or diesel is uh, without its risk by any stretch. But you know, we understand it. If we smell it, we know what it is. If we see it, we know what it is. And you know, it's, it's more familiar. And we know how to put out gasoline fires a little bit better than we know how to put out lithium-ion fires at this point. Of course, the hybrids are out there. And the hybrids have advantages and disadvantages. They still have batteries, uh, a battery bank that you have to deal with. And they do not have direct connection between the engine and the, and the wheels the engine and the batteries drive electric motors. And that really, if it wasn't a a good idea, I don't think our locomotives would be doing it, but they pretty much all do. Your your big diesel locomotives do not have a transmission that goes to their wheels. They have a big old diesel engine that runs a generator, and the generator uh, powers the wheels through electric motors. So, you know, it's... It's proven technology, and it's just been miniaturized uh, in recent years to the automotive size. Well, that's pretty much all I had to talk about tonight. I've actually simplified the topic quite a bit. There's a lot more detail that you can find if you want to research uh, the diesel cycle, 
Uh, the math on that is more than I could explain on this and probably more than I could explain to myself. Um, diesel engines, the history is quite interesting. Uh, the largest diesel uh, engines you're going to find on ships. The largest diesel engine that I'm aware of is powering the container ship, the Emma Maersk, which... Uh, that engine produces 114,800 horsepower, or 85.6 megawatts, or million watts. Pretty cool. It's turbocharged, and I believe it can run either forward or backward. I could be wrong about that on this particular engine, but as I, w- as I was reading up for this podcast, I learned that these, uh, these ship engines typically do not run through a transmission, and they're, they're directly attached to the propeller. And if you want to back up, you stop the engine and you restart it in the opposite direction, which kind of blows my mind. It's pretty cool. There was one additional point that I had intended to make earlier, and it has slipped my mind. I'll throw it in now. A diesel engine of the basic mechanical sort is, by its very nature, EMP-proof. What does that mean? You do not have any systems on a basic diesel engine that require electricity to run. Now, you do have to have electricity to start the engine uh, in a lot of cases, but that, that can be gotten around depending on uh, what it's driving and where you park it. But you do not have any ignition system. By, by its very design, it has no need for an ignition system. And so the ignition system on a gasoline engine is its weak point from an EMP perspective. Uh, That's assuming that it doesn't have a computer, in which case the computer is the weak point. But uh, if you're you're looking for a vehicle that is essentially EMP proof to make sure that you will be able to get around at least until you run out of gas after an EMP attack, Number one choice is a diesel of some sort, and I mean an early diesel of some sort, not the current ones. Uh, Number two choice would be a gasoline engine-powered vehicle with either shielded ignition and electrics, which would be uh, a very unusual setup. Uh, There are some available. They are mostly military surplus. Or uh, you can take your chances and go with just an older vehicle that has points ignition um, and not a not an electronic ignition system. And you've got a decent chance of it surviving, uh, especially compared to modern vehicles. So that's the, uh, that's the prepper gem tossed in for this one. I, uh, I thank you for listening through. This is uh, 27 minutes of me going on about, uh, about something that most of you probably had uh, little interest in. And if you've gotten this far, I want to thank you. Tune in again, uh, well, I should say next time, but I, I never know when the next time will be. Um, just keep uh, keep watching our Twitter feed or our Facebook page uh, or, uh, or just come back to renaissanceonlineradio.com on a regular basis to see if, uh, if I've had a chance to record another podcast. This is something I enjoy doing, but I do it in my free time. And with baby number three, uh, now almost three weeks old, That free time is even less than it was before, but I'm not complaining. Thank you for listening, and uh, have a great day.